Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tor.com. Joining me today is Margaret Atwood, whom you'll all have heard of, but uh, let me go on about this the right way and tell you that she is the writer of over a dozen novels, multiple books of poetry, short fiction and non-fiction. Amongst a gazillion other accolades, she won the Governor General's Award for the Circle Game in 1966 and The Handmaid's Tale in 86 and the Arthur C. Clarke Award for The Handmaid's Tale in 87 and the Booker Prize for The Blind Assassin in 2000. Her latest novel, The Heart Goes Last, won the Kitschies Red Tentacle Award earlier this year. I'm going to hold back from gushing too much, but it is such a thrill to be speaking with you. Welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Now, myths, legends, fairy tales, all part of the human psyche, all built into the stories you write, all built into the stories we all tell about each other in whichever way. I know you wrote the Penelope for the Cannon Gate myth series. Your poem, Helen of Troy Does Countertop Dancing, is something I go back to again and again. Do you have an absolute favorite myth, though, one that perhaps, you know, rings true to your life most of all? Well, I think what, let's go to the Penelope ad and, and think of the characters uh, in Greek mythology and how they signaled to the audience what kind of person it was. Uh, they let the audience know which gods were taking a particular interest in that character. So with Ulysses, we know that it was Athene who was very interested in invention and cleverness, and it was Hermes who was the god of communication, but also the god of lies, theft, uh, gambling, travel, and uh, revealing hidden things. So I always say that writers have got one of two gods, sometimes both. Uh, who take an interest in them, and, and one of them is Apollo, who's interested in structure, order, beauty, symmetry, form, those kinds of things. But the other one is, is Hermes. So I would say he's my guy. He's your guy. I'm I definitely, that. He's my guy. I'm definitely a Hermes kind of writer rather than an Apollo kind of writer. Now, your next book is Hagseed, based on The Tempest, I believe, in part yeah, of Yeah, it's a very... Uh, yes, Caliban is definitely a, a Hermes type of guy as well. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about him, because, uh, I mean, he's a monster who talks, right? He's got personality. He's more than just this basic, nameless threat. Was he, do you think, the first of the talking monsters, like a precursor to Frankenstein's creature? I, I kind of think he was, but uh, you'd have to go back. I, I think you, there, were, there were some before him, for instance, in the... In the Odyssey, there's uh, Polyphemus, who is also a talking monster. So monsters have been around in mythology for a very long time, and uh, a lot of them in Greek mythology were former human beings. They got turned into monsters for one reason or another. So I'm, I think that's been with us. But in, in modern times, say in English, I think I think Caliban is the first one, and he's, he's certainly... Uh, one for whom we have a certain amount of sympathy. So he's a precursor to to Frankenstein, the the novel version. The novel version is, of course, much more articulate than anything you see in the movies. Right. Do you prefer the chatty monsters to the you know quiet, sullen ones, even if the chatty ones are a little less threatening because they're chatty? Well... Yeah, being a writer, of course, I prefer the chatty ones. And and uh, when zombies came to be all the rage, we, we had quite a problem because <clears throat> they don't have any memories. <laughs> right. So uh, how to get a chatty zombie? It has been managed now. We've had a couple of novels in which 
people in the process of becoming zombies are telling us their story. And we even have had a film in which uh, the hero makes it back from zombiehood through the power of love. Uh, oh, nice. Um, but but the chatty ones, I think the chattiest of the chatty ones have been the vampires. They've had a lot to say. They have. have they? they yeah, have. they've had a, <laughs> really a lot. Because, of course, they... They've lived a long time. They've usually accumulated quite a lot of money, and they never lost their minds or memories. So they have been able to tell us a lot of stories. Which of the characters in The Tempest would you like to spend a day alone on an island with? Uh, is this a realistic question or a more abstract question? We could go either way. In other words, if I if I spent a day alone with this person on the island, uh, would I be in my real body and subject to the laws of gravity, etc.? If you want, they then. would. Okay, so if if you choose Caliban, of course, it would be very interesting to talk to him, but you might be in some danger. Right. Uh, if you choose Ariel, he probably wouldn't have much to say to you unless you had the magic um, staff and book because without those, he's going to be off somewhere fooling around with the flowers and whatnot. Um, Prospero, I think, might be... We kind of know his story. He's told it to us at great length in scene two. <laughs> right. So who else is there? Uh, that's kind of it, isn't it? Miranda, she's really too young. In the play, she doesn't have a lot to say. She has much more to say in my novel. Um, I don't know. I think if I if I had a, a taser, it would probably be Caliban. If you had a taser, or if he was just magically, you know, uh, uninterested in harming you. If he was uninterested in harming me, yes. Now, we were talking about monsters, and uh, the Kitschies Award, of course, the award itself, the physical award, is a giant tentacle. Um, and I had friends at the award ceremony who sent pictures of you turning up to the award with a little monster on your head. What was that all about? Yes. Well, it's an octopus. So I thought it would be appropriate since the awards are tentacles and they have um, not only the red tentacle, which I won, but they have um, a black tentacle, a blue tentacle, an invisible tentacle, and a gold tentacle. Right. So all of those were handed out and they also had tentacle chocolates. So I thought it would be appropriate to wear a tentacled being on my head. And I went in search of these, and I found one that was around a bottle of black soap uh, called squid soap uh, for use with small children. Uh, the idea is that you put the squid soap on their hands and then they scrub their hands to get the squid soap off. And around the neck of the bottle was this very fetching, um, wiggly octopus. So I have a bottle of squid soap. I'll use it later. And I, I took the octopus off it and put it on my head. You've recently written a comic book, Angel Catbird. You're not new to comics, but uh, what was this traditional process like of working with an artist and a colorist for Dark Horse as opposed to, say, you know, making them for yourself and by yourself? Well, the thing it's closest to is writing television and film scripts, which I did a lot in the 1970s. 
So it's a collaborative process. You're working with a team. Everybody is giving suggestions and sending them back and forth. And um, if you have a good team and you're having fun, it can be really quite wonderful. If you have a bad team, it can be quite awful, but I have a good team. So I work with Johnny Christmas, who comes up with the visuals and and I work with Daniel Shabon, who comes up with the edits on the story, and maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that, and also Hope Nicholson, who was the person who put this team together. And then there's a colorist, whose name is Tamra Bonvillane, and she adds layers of color. And in the published book itself, there's a description by her at the back as to how she does that which is pretty interesting. There's also a lot of sketches that we sent back and forth uh, arriving at the appearance of some of these characters. We had a we had a big back and forth about Angel Catbird's pants because originally he had no pants and he looked quite naked, so I said, you know, he really needs to have pants. So then it was a question of what kind of pants. And you can see the different kinds of pants that we considered and rejected in favor of the pants he currently has. Then we had to have an origin story of the pants because did they just grow on him when he transformed into a flying cat bird or did he come by them in some other way? Superman always bothered me. Yeah. It goes, it goes into the phone booth as Clark Kent. He comes out as Superman. Where was that costume? Yeah. Including the cape. Being a practical child, I wanted to know these things. I'm excited for Angel Gatberg. I love the uh, transformation panel that's available online when he morphs into his superhuman <laughs> form. But, you know, it, it did put me in mind of a TV show that I loved in the 80s, one of the very few TV shows that aired on Pakistani state-run television when I was growing up in Karachi. It was called Manimal. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I never saw Manimal. But you, you know of it, right? Into... It was about a doctor. Yes. It was about a doctor who could change into any animal he wanted to to help fight crime. His default Wasn't was that a wonderful? hawk. Yeah, his default was okay. a hawk or a panther. We all loved it to bits, though, you know, I, I don't know why. It just didn't last past one season. Um, but I was wondering if you could morph into any non-human creature to fight crime, what would you pick? Well, if I could morph into any non-human creature just to have fun, um, it would probably be a fox. But if I was going to morph into a non-human creature to fight crime, I would probably transform into a disease virus. Really? That's interesting. <laughs> how would you then transport yourself is what I'm wondering. Uh, how would, would I airborne? transport myself as a disease virus? Yeah, you'd be able. Maybe I would have to have a, a, a helper. Maybe I would have Everyone to have needs a sidekick. somebody. Yes. Yes, I'd, I'd have to have a sidekick. So I'd, I would have to have um, somebody who would carry me around in a little vial. <laughs> so maybe that person could be a bird. That is a frightening idea. Isn't it frightening? It yes, is, I know. Now, Alias Grace is going to be a TV series. You've had your work adapted for screen before, of course. The Handmaid's Tale, though, was made into a film, I think, about five years or so after it was published, which is fairly soon yes, as these yes, things go. Yes, about four years, yes. Uh, 1989 it, it launched. So Alias um, Grace, though, was published in 96, so it's been much longer. 
Well, there's a long story about that. The the person who's currently doing it, called Sarah Polly, wanted to do it ever since she was 19. So she's had it in her mind, and she approached us a, some time ago, and we uh, wanted to do it with her, but then several things happened in her life which postponed it. However, now she's able to do it. Yeah, they're starting to shoot in the middle of August. <coughs> And they're starting a uh, Handmaid's Tale TV series. So the distance, they're starting to to shoot that in uh, September. The distance that's passed. I wonder if it means that it'll be. Is it easier to sort of let go of the original vision you had and let it be transformed by someone else, or you know, does the time pass make you want to go back and address certain elements that you may have wanted to in the book but you couldn't? Yeah, I'm not writing script for for either of these, but I am consulting on them. So I already uh, have read Sarah's scripts because she did the script. She she originally did it as a film, but there was just too much. So she made it into a six-part miniseries. And I think these miniseries have been a, a great plus for longer novels because it means you don't have to squash things in, leave them out. You can develop um, the story a lot closer to the way it would unfold in a fairly long book. I, I don't know whether you saw Wolf Hall, the miniseries. I, I thought it was brilliant. It was. Uh, but then you, you have to, you get into the first part, and then you, you have to go with it, because it, it's not an action adventure. It's, it's a psychological study that unfolds and unfolds and gets darker and darker as it goes on. So that, that form... Um, which once upon a time we we said, oh, TV series, we thought of them as afternoon soaps, we thought of them as being like Dallas, uh, but now people are putting a lot of, um, a lot more care into them, and do you remember one called The Singing Detective? No, I'm afraid I didn't years know ago? that. Okay, well, I think it was one of the first, quotes artistic uh, television miniseries. And it's at the bar pretty high. But there have been some really excellent ones, as as we know. House of Cards, the original right. English one, brilliant. The, the American one has now got a huge audience. Game of Thrones, of course, very high production values, etc. Now, Neil Gaiman says to ask you about your terrifying Wicked Witch of the West impression. <laughs> is that a particularly enjoyable antagonist for you? I personally really enjoy her, and I'm always very sad when she, you know, has that water thrown all over her. I think it's an when unfair gets, end. When she dies. Well, yes. she's more fun in the movie than she is in the book, I have to say. Yes, I, I startled Neil. I was interviewing him on stage, and I said, And you're a little dog, too. And he said, No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. That <laughs> is terrified, uncanny. Terrified by her as a child. I wasn't terrified by her. I was terrified by the witch in Snow White. That was the scary one for me. Why her? The, the Disney's... Well, probably because I was five, whereas I didn't see The Wizard of Oz until later. Right. Now, speaking of uh, scary things, your work's always been, more so now, of course, than before, concerned with the environment. Why do you think we... You know, humanity, people, the world, why aren't we collectively genuinely freaking out about this irreparable damage we're doing to the environment? Are we just not listening to the bees? Are we just convinced we'll live forever? 
Are we as writer no, it's, it's not that. It's that most people um, are scrabbling very hard just to keep up with their lives. Right. So 750 million people are going hungry. Um, other people are sort of clinging on. But, but you know that if you have a job and you start agitating too much, you'll probably get fired. Right. So that that's reality. People like, like me who don't have jobs and therefore can't be fired are therefore expected to be front and center on these things, and, and many, many of us are. Uh, but other people, you, you can't expect them to throw themselves in front of the bus uh, because they... Um, they will imperil their means of livelihood and they will imperil their their families. So that is just reality. There's a, there's a lot of big interests out there that um, are against conversations like this going on. But if um, you hook into the environmental organizations who's, who are doing a lot of excellent work, you will hear some good news. Some good news. It's, it's usually, however, not until the flood hits your own town or the the drought hits your own area that you feel really impacted. Isn't it true? Right, absolutely. And then, of course, being human beings, and because we've got hope built in, we think, well, that was just once. You know, we'll we'll we, we'll rebuild from that, and uh, and then it'll it'll never happen again, which is also not true. Uh, a lot of people are going to be impacted by rising sea level. Right. And you know that yourself because one of the countries that is going to be hardest hit is Bangladesh, which is in that general area of where right. you are. So there will be an impact as populations get displaced. You're already seeing huge a huge movement of people, refugees fleeing places that have just become unlivable. And that's going to happen more because as as things warm, um, number one, sea levels rise. Number two, more evaporation, therefore more rainfall and greater amounts in some places and uh, shifting climate conditions in others. And all of that leads to lower food production. And it's when you've got lower food production that you get very unhappy, unstable populations. Speaking of lowered food production, I'm going to take this conversation to a different angle. Now that we have cloned meat, which now we can do, uh, writer Lauren Bukas has a question that she uses on first dates and to start conversations at parties that I'm going to borrow for you. Now that we can have cloned meat, would there be a celebrity that you would eat? Which part of them, and you know, how would you want it? Would <laughs> there be a celebrity that I would eat? Well, you can't uh, say. You know, well, Lauren's Lauren's uh, caveat always is that if your first date turns around and says, "Oh, Kim Kardashian's rump," then you know you dumped them right there because that shows no imagination, <laughs> no imagination at all. <laughs> okay, so first we have to get into under what circumstances would you eat human flesh at all? Well, it would be cloned um, human flesh. They would be cloned. So humanely done, the person would still be alive. You would just, you know. The person would, you just yeah. take a bit of them and then grow DNA it in a test tube. Absolutely. Well, I think it could be an, a thing, you know. I think you could raise quite a lot of money for charity that way. So you would auction off a bit of yourself. And uh, those who would desire it would be able to bid on it. 
and then have bragging rights. Right. You know, I ate, name the person. Who would you pay a lot of money for? I don't know. I'd have to give that some thought. So would it be somebody that I really liked and would want to make them part of me, or would it be somebody that I didn't like and would therefore be able to say, nanny, nana, right. I ate some of you? <laughs> I think it, it it requires some deep thought. I don't think you should just sort of make a snap judgment on such a thing. I'm going to get back but to maybe, you Maybe if I ate part of a, a singer, I would have better musical ability, do you think? I don't think it works that way. No? I wish Pity. it did. What, what if I ate a bit of an athlete? Would I become peppier and more athletic? Well, that's different because you're actually eating the muscle that they need to. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a valid point. Well, Athletes in that case, other. I think I would, I would eat part of a, a champion sprinter. Fair and enough. And I'd be able to get around faster. That is a good point. <laughs> Now, celebrity, as you say, it's you know, it's not something that's you. It's it is something that's usually associated with pop stars and film stars, but not anymore. Writers now, are, you know, much more easily recognized than they were, say, you know, fifteen years ago. I recall interviewing George R. R. Martin about this, and he felt this whole celebrity culture that's come up, and people grabbing writers and you know, selfies, and so it's just a matter of getting it out there online that I met this guy, I met you know, this writer, or that writer. And he kept saying it was ruining the quality of interaction between writers and readers because few people wanted to talk and more of them just wanted to take a selfie, frankly. I mean, I'm sure you get accosted by readers a great deal. They recognize you. Has it changed the sort of interaction they have with you since, I suppose, social media came into play? Is it better? Is it worse? Well, I'm on Twitter, as you know. So, right. uh, And I would advise any writer not to do that unless you enjoy it. But it, it's a different kind of thing. It's it's Twitter, uh, which is like having your own little radio show and inviting people onto it. But you don't use it as a platform to discuss your own work particularly. Um, the thing about writers is that they are not they are not the embodiment of the thing that people have have uh, attached themselves to and and enjoyed. That that thing is the book. So the writer, by the time the book is out there, is, is just incidental. And yes, we do have the selfie problem during book signings, but, but people never talked much during book signings anyway because there's a line. So instead of just sign the book, we now have, can I have a selfie too? And uh, that's fine, but it's not what you would call a deep literary discussion. We sometimes can do those on things like like Facebook and and Reddit. You know, you can answer questions at more length. Um, so I think it actually, for for people who are willing to do it, uh, it facilitates more of a certain kind of interaction that used to take place uh, during question period at, at um, appearances and still does, or via fan letters, which you would then answer. So I'd say fewer things come by mail, more things come over social media. Have you ever met anyone you've been starstruck by? Uh, I'd, I've failed to meet people that I would have been starstruck by because they were dead, basically. Oh, <laughs> got to help you with that one. <laughs> you can't? <laughs> no, you can't even eat them. It's too late. Oh, well, we could go onto the crystal ball and see if we could conjure them up. Oh uh, yes, there are some pretty frightening people. 
um, by frightening, I mean that they're very talented. Uh, and it's usually, you know, the awestruck part comes from your admiration for somebody's talent. And it's it's not that there aren't those people today, but if but if I single out one and mention them, the others will all be mad at me. Right. So I try to avoid doing that. It's okay to say Shakespeare because he's not only dead, he's really dead. Right. So only the and people also, who are... he's, so, he's so above that you, you're not allowed to be mad. No the one others, will be even, insulted. Even, no, the dead writers are not allowed to be mad right. either. So only people in public domain and only ones really high up there. Yes. I remember reading an interview with you in which you said you couldn't write dragons. You said it was not your wheelhouse. Having had this really successful writing career for, you know, 50 plus years, having written so many different forms, poems, comics, serials, novels, buried on the ground for a century, do you really think you have a specific wheelhouse? I mean, I think you could pull off some pretty snarky dragons, but possibly ones that breathed more eco-friendly fumes. Well, no, I think they've they've been done well by other people. And uh, I, I don't really think I can improve on that. So I think I will I will let people enjoy the dragons that there are without messing up dragonhood with my own contributions. There are various kinds of dragons. Some of them are quite wise. Those would be Ursula Le Guin's dragons. Right. And they're very articulate and they also make jokes. Um and some of them are basically flamethrowers. Those would be the ones in in uh George R. R. Martin. So they're not they're not chatty. They don't have language, but they they can be pointed in the direction um, of people you want to obliterate. That's always handy. That's <laughs> always handy. In those stories. <laughs> yes, I think she's having a bit of trouble. She's had yeah. some trouble with them from time to time. They 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 become um, disobedient and hard to control. As all children do. Uh, I was thinking more of attack dogs. Oh, those two. <laughs> Now, I've, I've heard you say that Lady Gaga, her level of performance and theatricality interests you. For the year of the flood, there were performances too, I believe, and at the time of the book's publication. Your we work, did, yeah. yeah and the work, your work, of course, has over the years been performed for stage, for screen, as we were saying earlier. Storytelling itself, the very act of communicating, it's all a performance, really. But what about the follow-ups to the actual writing process, the tours, the interviews, Awards like the Kitschies that you know you attend, these podcasts like this one, they just come mm -hmm. crawling at you from you know everywhere like hordes of zombies. Are they a necessary evil, or is it fun to see the impact your work has had on people's lives? Well, you can always say no, and right. some writers do. But having started in in Canada in the early '60s, there wasn't any of that. None of it existed. So in those days, we were always whining that there there wasn't enough of it, and if only there was this, if only there was that. And it was the 60s generation in, in this country that, that built a lot of the infrastructure that you see today. So we built uh, small publishing houses. Uh, we instigated reading series. We, uh, it was our idea then that we should have writers in residence in universities, it's now morphed into this ginormous industry. Um, and book tours, that was a Canadian thing, too, because Canada's very big, so how do you get uh, writers here and there? And the publisher of that time, Jack McClelland, 
um, started the book tours in the 60s, and he would put you in Halifax, and then you would hippity-hop across the country one city at a time uh, and do the radio shows and the newspapers in those cities because there wasn't any Internet then, and nobody did phoners like the one we're doing now. So all of that got got put in place. We built it. We can hardly now turn around and, and denounce it. Uh, it is slightly, be careful what you wish for, but it has given writers many more platforms, many more ways of connecting, many more ways of uh, making it known that they have written a book. Has it become easier over the years, writing novels? For whom? For you. For me. <laughs> I thought it was going to be that question, is it easier to be a young writer now? And my answer would have been, it's easier in some ways, but it's harder in others because there's a lot more competition. Right. There are a lot of talented uh, younger writers, and they're com- in competition with one another, basically. Um, at the same time, they're often helpful to one another, but still, uh, one cannot read 4,000 books a year. And that would just be scratching the surface. So uh, it's a matter of finding your readership. Writing novels has it become easier for me. I think it's it's the same level of difficulty in that you're looking at a blank page. And you're looking at that blank page whether you're 18 or whether you're 88. You are still faced with the problem of what to put on it. I think if you've never published a book before, you have infinitely more spiritual freedom because nobody's expecting anything from you. Right. Whereas if you have published before, there's going to be some people who will want you to have written the book you published last time and other people who will resent it if you do that. So so there's more people looking over your shoulder once you're a published writer, but if you can ignore them... Uh, you're simply involved with the blank page, as every writer is. I feel like you did ignore them over the years. Um, faute de mieux, yes, I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> because you did a lot of things, and you've done a lot of things that I assume pub- your publishers may have been surprised you did. Like, you know, um, the What Bad series, for example. Yes, I know. Yes, I, it sometimes gets me into trouble, but, but you, you can't... Um, you can't go about uh, spending all of your time managing your so-called image. Right. I think it's very self-destructive. Now, uh, my last question. In an earlier print interview I did with you, uh, you said that you are now old enough to be considered either the wise old woman, W-O-W, yes, yes, or the yes. wicked old witch. Now, I, s- I, I sometimes think you are secretly both. So are you? Uh, yes, well, some wicked old witches are also wise old women. I'm not sure it goes the other way around. Uh, Am I both? What a question. Do you think that if I were both, I would admit to it? See, that's that's always the problem, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. If I were were wise, I would not admit to it. Right. Well, if you were wicked, then, you know, you wouldn't admit to it. If I were wicked, if I were wicked, I wouldn't want people to know exactly how wicked I was because yeah. I would want to be doing my wickedness in secret, would I not? Yeah. So you would actually be the perfect, uh, the, the, you, the liar's, what is it called, the liar's conundrum? Is that what it's called? 
Uh, liar's, yeah, what is it called? Liar's Some, Bluff? Li- something, like that. something like that. I'm not liar's getting it right something. either. Liar's <laughs> no, I'm not getting it right either. But you're basically the perfect, the perfect woman for a fairy tale because the one you can't trust but the one you have to trust. That's me. That's you. <laughs> I think every narrator, you know, and if, if you're writing a novel, of course you are that. Um, somebody in your book may also be a narrator, but, but every narrator is like that. So as Dante descends to hell, he needs Virgil. Virgil, on the other hand, is a writer, therefore inherently untrustworthy. But if Dante is going to get back out, he has to trust Virgil. How about that? That's a good answer. Thank you. (laughs) Still not sure whether I should be trusting it, though. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me, Shay. And thank you. It's been a pleasure.